Hello, and welcome to Nerds and Nodes, the Mac AI podcast. My name is Gal, and I will be your host. This show is for those of you who are interested in learning all about artificial intelligence and its countless applications in the fields of science, business, medicine, engineering, and more. Each podcast will have a different expert come in and cover a variety of topics, including their own experiences and career path, current developments in AI, real-world applications of their work, and even some speculations for the future. If you're interested in hearing advice directly from the experts in AI, then this is the podcast for you. For today's episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Gaylene Gray. She's the current Chief Technology Officer right here at McMaster University, and today she's here to describe both the current and future climates of IT, specifically within post-secondary institutions. Hi, Gaylene. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gal. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. So uh, typically I start off with uh, just sort of an, an introduction of our guests. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us sort of a background of um, your education, maybe some relevant job experience, anything to get you uh, to the position that you're in today, the field you're in today, um, something sort of along those lines. Perfect. Okay, thank you. I'll try to do this in a succinct fashion. Uh, first of all, my name is Gaylene Gray, and I'm the Assistant Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at McMaster University. And I've been here for just over four and a half years now. So it's been a really busy and fun four and a half years. My genesis to IT goes way, way, way back. And in fact, um, my education, I started off with an undergraduate degree in English literature. Uh, and honors in English literature. I had actually started in journalism and then switched into English literature. And when I graduated from university um, in the, I'm going to date myself now, gal, in the 90s, it was an economically challenging time and I had an English literature degree and I wasn't sure what exactly to do with that. So I ended up finding a position with somebody There is a purpose to this, so just bear with me. I ended up finding a position with somebody um, who wanted someone who could do desktop publishing and some graphic design on an old Amiga 3000, Mm. although it was new at the time, and um, had never done that before. But I threw my name in, and he thought that I sounded like I was a good person to deal with customers, and so I ended up uh, being hired. So that was really my first computer-related or computer-based experience. And from there, mm-hmm. I um, ended up um, in hospitality, not related in any way at all, for a number of years. And then in the late 90s, I went back and achieved a few IT certifications. I was looking for a change. Uh, and at that time, it was pre-Y2K. And for people who don't know what that is, pre-year 2000, when we thought all the computers were going to roll over the four digits and go back to 1900 or zero or something, and nobody knew uh, whether we'd all survive. And uh, so everybody was going into IT. And that's how I ended up in information technology. And then I was um, picked up at the University of Guelph. And that really was the start of my higher ed IT career 23 years ago. Wow. Um, Yeah, fascinating (laughs) journey there. Um, So would you say that your undergrad actually taught you any kind of skills that, that really helped you? Or was it kind of you're thrown into... Was it more just kind of the experience of having a degree and then thrown into a field where you can kind of leverage what you know? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I've always felt very grateful that I had the humanities arts background. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we learn in institutional ac academia education, creative thinking, you know, knowing how to absorb information, be able to play it back mm -hmm. to people, uh, the ability to form sentences and actually communicate. I would say that I spend an awful lot of time communicating um, via written communications. Now, of course, it's whether it's a blog or an email or a report or what have you, all of those things have really benefited me over time. But I think just going to the university and, and engaging in that experience was really beneficial for me, obviously. Um, and actually, the weird correlation, I would say, I went to university and met two amazing people in my first year of university who are my best friends who actually lived in Guelph and they're the whole reason I ended up in Guelph. So they actually, you know, really in some mm -hmm. weird and wonderful way um, helped start my trajectory into higher education IT. So I guess my big takeaway for that is make friends and you never know how that will come back to support you as <laughs> you go on the journey yeah. of life. <laughs> yeah, wow. And, and so, so it really seems that you were kind of just thrown into this first role kind of taking whatever position was available to you and then that second time around it was much more of a conscious choice to go into IT can you elaborate on that and what you kind of enjoyed and what you looked forward to yeah I don't think I really understood fully what uh, the potential career opportunities were at the time um, there were just yeah. a lot of general certifications that people were providing uh, education around. So, um, you know, I had a telecommunications diploma and I had, uh, you know, an IT as certification that would allow me to fix people's computers. And I um, did web design in HTML. And I, mm -hmm. so it was kind of a broad array of things. So I, I think at the time what I had originally thought when I started to take the programs that I took was that I would, um, do tech writing. So there were a lot of, I was living in Ottawa at the time, and there were lots of companies that, um, including Nortel, that were hiring people to come in, understand how the technology works, and then write manuals to explain to people how the technology works so that they could learn how to okay. use it. So that sounded like something that would kind of marry my, I really enjoyed my period of time when I was, to your point, sort of thrown in doing graphic design and desktop publishing. And I thought, ah, how hard could it be? I can write, and I know how to you know, format things. So perfect. I can do this tech writing thing. Um, so that really had been my intention when I got into it. Um, but, you know, that's life journey again. I think through the experience, I did a lot of um, server administration certifications um, and the HTML. I really loved doing web design. I thought that was really creative and interesting to me. So I started to realize, well, you know, the tech writing thing, sure, that could work, but there's all these other opportunities. And then really at the end of days, it becomes, where can I get a job? You know, at that age, I was, had transitioned out of one career trajectory and into something completely different. I needed to find mm -hmm. some place to work and where was I going to do that work? And of course, why not go somewhere where you know people? So when I started in yeah. uh, the University of Guelph in higher ed, I don't even know if I knew I was going to be there very long. I mean, I would kind of, they slotted mm -hmm. me into a server administration, customer service support model. And then things just took off, you know, here's a project. Oh, that worked out really well. Here's another project. And next thing you know, you know, you're applying to manager positions and what have you. So yeah, I think all of those, 
yeah, and you just move from there, right? I mean, it's serendipity. Yeah, you work really. your way up, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. And okay, kind of uh, back to basics almost. Can you can you just give me a, a sort of a baseline definition of what what IT is exactly and what it encompasses? <laughs> that's an impossible uh, it might question. Be, it could be an easy or, yeah, it could be easy or impossible. Well, it. yeah, fascinating. Well, I would say to you, there's probably two bookends to that. It's sort of the what was information technology um, and how do people mm-hmm. define um, information technology and then what is it now? You know, it used to be, if you really think about the breakout of that, it's technology that supports information, right? It's information technology. So basically, we have technology, it has to support our ability to gather data in in the most simplest form. And then how do we share that data? present the data, absorb the data, make decisions around the data, all of that. I mean, that that is, um, I think, at its core, where information technology was. And so that's hardware and it's the network and it's, you know, that structure that supports data. I think in today's terminology, information technology really is uh, so much more than that. You know, it's, it's delightful technologies, it's experiences, it's the ability Mm -hmm. to um, advance and do things more efficiently. It's all that at its core, it is still about structure whether it's technology, um, hardware, and si- or systems, or applications, or mobile applications, or devices, or whatever that supports data and information. So, but it has changed so much. I mean, if you really, you know, I'm not going to give a history in in IT here and how did it all get started back in you know the WWW uh, era and all those other things. But you know, it just it's in a constant growth and shift and change and it's becoming so much more powerful all the time so essentially this kind of paradigm shift in it has gone from more of uh, the outdated idea or you know outdated still at its core um uh, a field of logistics and information and essentially just the transfer of technology and now it's become almost like leveraging technology to improve uh, quality of life or enhance the quality of our services or whatever it might be. Yeah, 100% agree with that statement. I think it's just, it's very integrated. And in my world, um, supporting higher education and the mission of the institution, um, technology used to be considered sort of this more, you know, on the fringe or underpinning or never to be seen or heard. And it's now become so integrated with everything that we do. You cannot, you know, if you think about getting up in the morning and functioning through your day, whether you're a student, staff, faculty, instructor, the president, if that technology is not functioning, you're basically going back to bed. Like there is just nothing, you know, your whole world relies (laughs) on all of these pieces. It's often a joke, you know, when people are talking about how busy they are, I, you know, I can tell them I'll just pull the plug and we'll take the network down and then everybody can have a, it's almost like having a snow day, right? We could have a network day. Everybody can just relax because without the network, we're really, there's very little we can do. Yeah. Kind of a, kind of a funny story. I was, uh, I was pretty swamped with some work, uh, a few weeks back and I come downstairs and uh, living with a few housemates and um, all of a sudden I go, you know, I, I wish more than anything we had a power outage right now. Um, It just goes to show there's, you know, that's it. Like I wouldn't have any other work to do. I could take the time to 
uh, you know, I guess it would forcefully disconnect me from uh, all my obligations. Uh, just shows you how integral technology is, right? Yeah, they're trying to build better batteries, gal. So you can't even, you know, claim that as a deficit. Uh, <laughs> You'd have to still yeah. functioning. So, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it really is so much of what we do. Um, and I think it's an interesting thing because there is an acceptance of it, but it's not an intentional acceptance. It kind of just is what it is. So people still resist it yeah. on some level. Mm -hmm. um, understanding. Um, you know, we all know we have to do it. I was just speaking to somebody um, within the last uh, week about the idea of digital competency as a core competency that all of us need to have because there is no job now that doesn't require you to have some ability to use technology and to leverage it or, you know, be efficient using it to enable whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. And we, yeah. I think that is, um, there's kind of a, an implicit expectation, but there's not an explicit expectation. And I think that's why it's really important when, um, you know, I'm going on a digression, so I apologize, but when students start to um, start at their institution, making sure that they really understand what's available to them from a technology perspective, I think is so critically important because it, it ensures that they, A, know what the tools are and B, can utilize yeah. them and learn them so that when they leave the institution, it's not just what you learn in the classroom, it's all the tools that go with that, that you have le leveraged yeah. and made good use of. Mm -hmm. So, yes, yeah, so I guess two things on that point. One, I definitely want to uh, touch on eventually that, uh, that kind of competency that you spoke about, about how you know, it's, uh, you're no longer uh, an outstanding individual if you say on your resume that you're proficient in Word and Excel. Um, so, right, that's something that I definitely want to go go into later, you know, that's that sort of skill set that we have to update ourselves with in the modern day. And then second, of course, is the more specific, I guess, to your role in terms of uh, the technologies and services available to students, maybe not just at McMaster, but at higher education in general. Um, so I wanted to ask you sort of um, how you see your role fitting into uh, daily life on campus and how exactly it just fits into the field of IT in general. Specifically, um, you, uh, of course, we'd love to hear more about McMaster, uh, but I guess at a secondary, post-secondary institution uh, in, in particular. Uh, just a description of kind of what IT is like. Well, I think everyone in my position is, um, in, in the case of McMaster, my title is Chief Technology Officer, but I am essentially equal to a Chief Information Officer across Canada. That's typically what people in my position are, are named. Okay. Um, you know, if, if we were really going to tell you what we think is really important, it is that you never think about me or my team or anything that we do, because it's all working so wonderfully that it just, everything's just happening and it's integrated and it's seamless and it's, um, you know, delightful and people just have their devices and they can interact with systems and they've got the personalization they're looking for and all those wonderful things that, you know, when we created our IT strategic plan, we called them digital moments, you know, really dream of the future on campus, what would you want that to look like so that we can sort of take that model and think, okay, well now what were all, what, what are the underpinnings or all the technologies and systems that would be necessary in order to actually create that experience for people? So for me, what it means 
means on campuses, things are working and people are able to really do the things that they're here to do. They're not here to do IT. They're here to teach, to learn, to do research, to, you know, support each other, whatever those pieces are. So, um, so that is an, unfortunately not the way things work. Uh, and I'm okay to say that because it is a reality that, yeah. you know, technology, it's like you're, you know, you're driving along and your muffler falls off. Well, technology, like it's a, it's a, it's infrastructure, it's, it's manufactured, it's nuts and bolts and wires and, you know, um, conductors and, you know, transmitters and blah, 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 all those good things that are, you know, in, in, uh, we're having supply and demand issues around right now and, um, chips, (laughs) the, the challenge for us is that things don't work all the time. And there's an interface between the technology and the, and the human who still needs to be supported by that technology and how they intersect. So sometimes the technology is working and the human is not able to make it work the way they want it to work. And sometimes the technology doesn't work. Sometimes the human doesn't work. And, you know, like there's all these things that come together and it really is about the interaction between the two. So I would say that my job is really, um, really at the highest level is strategic. Where are we going? But it's also to ensure all that operational technology continues to function and people yeah. can do what they want. Oh. So is that kind of uh, along the lines of that sort of plan that you mentioned, kind of a, an ideal scenario, always kind of what you're working towards? And then um, so so what is the kind of current state of IT and education? What are your major what are your major goals, basically? Mm. Um, and and how do you kind of uh, along the same lines, what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, have been thrown your way? Oh boy. These are all really humongous questions. So I'll do my best. Uh, this, the state yeah, of technology and higher education. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'll carve off the place about technology and education um, in higher education specifically. Well, again, I think there's so many layers to it because technology supports research uh and different systems support research than those that support teaching and learning. And then there are different ones that support the administrative side of the house. And frankly, everybody, because, you know, HR systems or finance systems are the underpinning that supports us as people who are delivering um, on the mission of the institution or who are, you know, either intaking money from tuition or, um, you know, endowments or whatever those, you know, so there's a real ecosystem. And I think that's the important thing to think about. It's a real ecosystem in higher education um, and universities specifically, since that's the space that we're, we're functioning from. Again, I, I think that the the state of technology is that there's a lot of technical debt, frankly. I mean, there are old systems that have been purchased and have not been updated or refreshed in some cases. I think we're moving, you know, there's a constant sort of continuous improvement or maturing aspect of this. But, you know, people have bought systems over time and then they've implemented activities based on those systems. And sometimes the software can't be upgraded for, you know, a vendor has gone out of 
business. I'll just, you know, use that as an example. And, um, but we're so reliant on it and it's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to take time and people don't have the time. So we got to rely on that system. Well, it needs an older hardware underneath and you know, that thing. So yeah. you're dealing with this, what I'm calling, what I'm referring to as technical debt. What the challenge is, is we've got those kind of situations in our environment. And then we've got this aspirational, uh, piece that I talk about, you know, and that is the McMaster IT strategic plan is really where are we going, you know, that dreaming of the future and how, you know, people use the terminology digital transformation, how that can support us as an institution to really achieve our uh, goals and our aspirations as an institution. You got these two ends of that. And it's almost like functioning in two different places. You're having to keep a lot of systems going until you can find a way to get either the funding, the resources, or the will to update them while you're also trying to move to the future and then um, implement new systems and new technologies and new capabilities, which probably 10 to 15 years from now are gonna be back to this technical debt piece if you don't keep it refreshed. So I would say there's that whole churn that's happening. But in addition to that, that old technology and those out of date systems create risk for us. So there is a huge, um, you know, I love the idea of the new technologies and the exciting things. And quite often that's happening in research. Researchers on our campus, as mm-hmm. an example, are exploring these really new and interesting technologies. From a, um, yeah. my perspective, central IT, sometimes you can't even get to doing the really cool and interesting things because you're dealing with this kind of bimodal approach to technology on campuses. And it takes a lot of time and effort. It's not efficient. And it builds risk. And part of the risk is cybersecurity. And frankly, that has eclipsed so many of the innovative, advancing opportunities we have because it's costing a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It's requiring us to do a lot of extra work that could have been channeled towards dreaming of the future type technologies. But in fact, what we're really doing is building perimeters around, it's like a cold war, you know, you're building these perimeters around the institution to protect us from all the people who are trying to get our data um, and, you know, use our systems to mine Bitcoin and, you know, doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things, trying to monetize the, their um, ability to access our systems. So I find it's, um, it's a, it's a, there's a lot going on because we're trying to do all of these things yeah. at the same time. And we're human. We only have so much capacity. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it's great that especially you brought up the cybersecurity piece. Actually, uh, um, one of the previous episodes we did with uh, John Weigelt, who's the CTO of Microsoft, we went yeah. uh, really into depth about the cybersecurity piece and, you know, what are our obligations as um, you know, people at the forefront of these like corporations or institutions to protect our privacy. Uh, you know, since um, again, with uh, with something as as uh, with with the internet, for example, evolving at the rate that it is, and you know, all these different technologies. You, you even mentioned crypto, right? That's a it's a huge. There's so many loopholes, uh, and you know, legislation with it uh, can't just can't keep up, and and there's so many ways to take advantage but that's that's a that's a whole other conversation so but what i wanted to get your take on actually is um with sort of this idea of the uh, how how fast technology sort of accelerates and outdates itself um, especially with covid because i feel that 
especially at a post-secondary institution, COVID is really, at least my impression of it, these technologies that before would have been, you know, completely fine, um, and at least, you know, some of them were somewhat advanced, um, have now become within a matter of, what, a year or two, uh, totally insufficient, uh, you know, for uh, recording lectures or, uh, you know, uh, making things accessible for different students. So I, I sort of want to get your take uh, on on how COVID in particular has uh, sort of shifted your role and the things you have to pay attention to. Mm, great question. Uh, and very timely as we're um, working our way back to campus and thinking a lot yeah. more about hybrid delivery of teaching and learning as an example, or just standard work. So, you know, the interesting thing about COVID for many of us, we would say that it actually rapid state advanced our environment way faster mm-hmm. than it might have otherwise. Um, and so as an yeah. example, the use of Zoom technology or Teams technology, which is part of our Microsoft licensing um, capability, people were just kind of dabbling with those. We didn't have an enterprise Zoom license. People were not video conferencing. Uh, yeah. They were doing it in the old fashioned way, you know, with a T1 line or, you know, they, they had in the room kind of cameras and what have you. And they were doing that kind of um, in the faculty of health sciences, as an example, they were doing this um, with classrooms that might be in other places so they could, you know, deliver the classroom to multiple sites. Yeah. So we went from people aren't doing this within two weeks, everybody's doing it. So I think one of the things that was really um, satisfying was that we were able to quickly pivot and get everybody up and running and then we had to really support the, in many cases, instructors were probably the most impacted and students support that environment. How do we do all the things we used to do in a place on a campus now, not on the campus with everybody distributed? And so I agree with you. I think it, it has highlighted some of the limitations of some of our technologies. But again, I would say, it also highlights the capacity of people to adapt and to learn and to advance. And the challenge isn't that people don't have the ability. It's sometimes they don't have the time. Um, They may have resistance because we all deal with change quite differently. We've seen lots of examples of that over the last few years. And they don't know where to go to get the support or the help or the direction or the information to help them make that. So change management is probably, I would say, kind of a big, the biggest component of all of this. It's not so much that the technology is not capable. It's in many cases, people don't know how to make it do what they want um, or to evaluate whether it can or can't do what it, it, we want in order to upgrade, improve, or choose something different. Um, And again, it comes back to what we talked about earlier. Technology is embedded in everything. And everyone has a particular way in which we engage with our technology. So we all have different preferences. So one of the things that I'm you know, in the uh, fortunate and unfortunate position of being, uh, you know, driving on campuses, trying to find standards so that we can be more efficient and consistent in how people are. So if you're a student and you walk into the engineering uh, classroom or you walk into a humanities classroom or something over in, um, you know, the faculty of health sciences, your experience isn't 
totally different. And I think a lot of students had that happen during COVID at first because everybody just picked a technology they either knew or could get their hands on fastest. And they built their efforts around that for good reasons and it was very sensible. And then as a student, you got five different classes in a day and you're on Zoom, you're on Teams, you're in Echo 360, you're, you know, we're just doing a telephone call. I don't know if that actually happened, but you know, there are actually (laughs) those differences and it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And that that actually brought back a kind of strange memory of uh, just me feeling frustrated that I have to jump between all these platforms and, you know, memorize that, oh, this class is, uh, you know, this class's lecture is on Zoom, but its tutorial is on Teams and the office hours I have to go here for this link and um, sort of the integration. Yeah. Because you're right. I think at the beginning, each department uh, kind of, yeah, each department or faculty or whatever it was, was familiar with their own sort of thing, or maybe was familiar with doing some sort of online format uh, in the past. Um, And with everyone going in different directions, it really does cause a lot of confusion. I'm sure sure a lot of miscommunication as a result. So um, that's probably a big issue for you to deal with. Yeah. And it's, again, I think a key takeaway is understanding that everybody's doing the best they can to deliver solutions to achieve what our goals are ultimately. The, The challenge for us is if we try to build standards, it means someone has to change. It might be multiple someone. So, you know, if you land on, we're all gonna, you know, just hypothetically, if we're all gonna use Teams now for teaching, but people use other tools, those people all have to come to that new solution. And there's resistance to that. Again, understandably, because there's only so much time we all have. There's only so much, you know, I'm going to have to redo all of my, whatever it is that I'm doing using the technology that I know really well. And so that has been probably, and will continue to be one of those challenges. And, And part of it has to do again with maturation. Um, just in terms of the institution and how it looks at itself as one institution. Um, And there's all these, there's six different faculties. There's a bunch of other departments and everybody has their, they're all trying to move really quickly to achieve what they need to achieve. And sometimes that means we end up with, you know, multiple solutions that essentially all do the same thing. It's not necessarily wrong, but from one institutional perspective, you know, we're, there's duplication of effort and resources, et cetera. It's a real, there's constant tension in this world yeah. around the what's right. And I would say there is no necessarily right way. The challenge is there's just a lot of different ways, but if we're doing it a lot of different ways, there's a real challenge in that because it means that we're losing ground on you know, getting the whole institution moving in a particular direction. So, yeah. You know, I'm not always the most popular person. I got to be honest with you, gal. This is the challenge I have <laughs> is trying to figure out, you know, how do we help support people in doing their independent and individual things while we're also trying to move together as an institution? Because my purview is really the yeah. whole institution. And I, I think even then compared to those, uh, as you mentioned previously, the pre-Y2K days, I feel like today people are much more um, I guess, open or accepting of the concept of technological change um, rather than back in the day where every single step forward is uh, seen as this monumental, you know, right. um, I don't know how to work this thing when it, in yeah. reality it's, it's a flip phone that any child could use today. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, and I'm sure again also with with the COVID piece, for example, uh, of you know having to not only okay you're going to be using this one platform, but now there's the actual uh, physical like management and training of how to use the technology. But at at least again, I think compared to back in the day, people are more accepting. Um, of the idea that change is coming once every few years, you know, this big adaptation that we have to make. And it is for the better, ultimately. Yeah, I would say the shift is that the it is less episodic now and it's really more constant, you know, everything's changing yeah. all the time. Yeah. And so much of it is out of our control because we have so much reliance on technology. You know, I... Uh, it's funny you you mentioned John Weigelt. So he and I both sit on the um, AI the board for the AI Society here at McMaster, and he and I sit on another board together, um, Canary, which is they provide um, basically the network backbone across Canada, and uh, so they provide the the network backbone across Canada that our um, research networks all plug into. They provided Jerome, et cetera. Anyway, we sit on that board as well. And so, you know, I'll take a little, you know, pat. It's not a swipe. I'm going to say a little pat at Microsoft because one of the challenges we have is these huge vendors that we use. So Microsoft is our um, Teams environment, our email environment, and what have you. So it's great. I mean, we have this big... um, big opportunity to leverage all of these tool sets and ensure students don't have to go out and buy their own um, productivity tools and whatever. I mean, there's a lot of win-win-win that happens with this. The challenge is we don't have control over when they update something or change something or what have you. And we've bumped our nose on this a number of times over the last while. So change is happening all around us and we don't often own the change, but because we're delivering or guiding people to, again, those standards, when something doesn't work, it's a huge frustration and challenge because we can't actually control it, but it still impacts everybody. And we're still ultimately accountable for its delivery on campus. Um, So, you know, I think in IT, you know, you're constantly um, swinging from being a hero because you get people up and running and do whatever and being the villain (laughs) the stuff you do really impacts the way people interact with their day-to-day activities Hmm. and uh yeah you're right that that really highlights the point of you know you you do kind of you are seen as kind of both uh yeah both the hero and the villain depending on context and you know whatever is being thrown at you true overall um that kind of change, even though it's gradual, like, right, we still, we still do have to make more monumental changes every once in a while, whether it's to policy or physical technology or whatever. And how, how exactly does uh, an institution like McMaster sort of realize and catch up to that change? Um, Such as, you know, if, if, um, if Microsoft, for example, makes a change to their privacy policy or whichever other software you're, you're using. Is there any adjustment that needs to be made on your part? Or do you sort of have to go with the flow uh, based on what the higher powers decide? 
So, uh, well, if the higher powers, you, by that you mean Microsoft, then, you know, we, we're yep. stuck with yep. whatever they throw at us. We kind of are stuck with that. I mean, you can, there are opportunities to lobby them to, you know, try and do things different. And we have a really great relationship with Microsoft um, and, and people who support higher education specifically. So they understand, like, we're a little different than other industries yeah. and organizations because of the again, that multiple constituency base and just the all on, we're like mini cities doing really cool and interesting things. And we're yeah. very reliant on our technology. Um, but to your other point, the how do we catch up with change and what's needed and how do decisions get made and who prioritizes? I'm, I'm going to elaborate on the question you've asked to assume that yeah, that's part of it. So in a large organization like ours, uh, and specifically in higher education and specifically in universities, we have a very complex environment. Uh, and it's not in, in a lot of private industry, you've got, you know, the C-suite decision makers and everybody just has to fall in line with decisions that are made. So if somebody at the top says, we are going to implement um, Microsoft or Google or and everybody will use it. If you're working at that company, you're using that. And it's not really up for yeah. debate. It's not a democracy. So, you know, there is this sort of, e one would think easier. I mean, they have their own challenges around, you know, people going off and doing their own thing in their nooks and crannies as well. But, you know, they implement this approach. In our environment, it doesn't work like that. And it's good that it doesn't work like that because there's, different opinions and different skill sets and different needs and you know one size does not fit all so decision making here is very uh, inclusive it requires a lot of engagement it requires a lot of relationship building and through that trust building to get people to come in for the conversation to explore what their needs are, what's the problem we're trying to resolve that we think technology is going to help us with. And then from there, working collectively or uh, collaboratively to say, okay, now that we've come to the determination and we all agree what the problem is, how do we go about finding a solution? And let's make sure that voices are heard. So the solution, it's not going to suit everybody. Again, we're such a big institution and there's so many different people who have different preferences. And we sort of default in, in our IT terminology, the 80-20 rule. You know, if you can try and fit 80% of the need and that other 20, you might, they're always going to be a little bit on the edge. And so, you know, but we're trying to solve for the 80%. Those numbers fluctuate depending upon the technology, I would say. Um, but we do try to have large scale engagement. And then we have an IT governance model here at McMaster and other higher ed institutions do as well where you bring people from across the different constituencies to sit around a table and have good conversations, get a good understanding, bring their various constituency-based perspectives forward so that when we make a decision to do something, you've engaged, and it's not just a perspective from an IT perspective, you know, a dean has weighed in on what works well in their faculty environment or, um, you know, our, our university secretariat might be at the table to discuss what works from a privacy basis or the provost has a say in, you know, sort of a more strategic academic um, perspective. So, you know, th that's what we do to try and help absorb what needs to happen. So that strategy piece 
as well as the bringing people along. And so you start with a coalition of the willing and then you, you know, you educate and communicate more broadly. But most of it is about talking to each other. It's relationships, it's communicating and really listening. It's a huge part of it. What is it that people are really trying to to do? And it goes back to the problem solving. So, which is great for every student here at McMaster since we're, you know, we've sort of built some of our uh, curriculum approach on that, you know, problem resolution. Uh, problem solving. Yeah. The, yeah, exactly. And so that's really what IT is, you know, it's problem solving. And you don't yeah. start with a technology, you start with a problem. And then you explore how would you potentially leverage technology to resolve that. Wow. Um, just out of curiosity, how, how often do those, you know, more or less like official conversations happen? A lot, frequently, more than you yeah. know. So as an example, I was on mm-hmm. a, um, in our IT governance model, we have the IT executive, they meet every six to eight weeks. And then we have these standing committees that focus around particular areas of uh, technology concerns. So today it was enterprise applications technology committee. We have a research information technology committee. We have uh, a teaching and learning technology committee, and we also have um, uh, an infrastructure and information security technology committee. So decisions get made there and things get endorsed, and then they move up to the IT executive, which includes the provost, a couple of deans, VPR, the VP research, et cetera. So there's a a VP finance and operations, um, some representation from research and high-performance computing services and from faculty IT, central IT, et cetera. And so ideas go forward and things get discussed and endorsed. And yeah, so, I mean, it's it's ongoing, but there's lots of one-to-one and one-to-many conversations that are happening outside of that as well to try and ensure that we continue to um, understand what needs there are and how people are delivering technology in their particular areas. Again, with the idea that institutionally we really want to continue to ensure that we're being as what's the word that I would use I want to say efficient but that's not always about efficiency really trying to deliver the best solutions to the broadest number of people I see and I think that point really plays well into kind of the next line of discussion that I wanted to bring up about how you know at first you mentioned sort of broad term these constituencies and then ask again sort of how how often these conversations happen you say look it's not it's not just one big sit down discussion it's you know many different people talking to one another and uh, it's also what really fascinated me about uh, IT when I first started looking into it is that really there is room for everyone you know whether it's a computer science degree or an English literature degree there's there really is room for people to collaborate and achieve one goal and Again, listeners of this podcast will know that um, I'm I'm a big proponent of this sort of interdisciplinary uh, communication and collaboration that has to happen. I really see it as a necessary step going forward if we want for if we want effective progress and change uh, to occur. So, I'm wondering, even within your own team, how how do you see that kind of interdisciplinary nature play out and um, kind of as we progress into the future, how, how do you think that'll uh, change or open up into new fields? Um, or, you know, which, which fields do you think uh, 
have been incorporated in the past few years, for example, that have sort of been less relevant in the past? Hmm. I agree completely. I think there is a place for everybody to engage in well, formal or informal IT, because I think we've already agreed that everybody has to have digital competency because everything you do now yes, essentially yeah. involves a computer or a device or a system or an interaction that is happening online in some way or through a mobile app or, you know, I could go on and on. Uh, the So what's shifted? I think... Yeah, I threw a pretty big question at yeah, you. Yeah, it is. You've thrown every question has been a big question. God, it's awesome. But yeah, yeah, so I'm just trying to think my way through the 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 way to answer this. One of the, so if I go back to what we were talking about, you know, the past technology, what was information technology and what is it today? I think that helps to illustrate yeah. some of the skills and competency differences. So technology used to be, you know, you need a desktop computer, but it's standalone. It's not connected to anything. And it's really a word processor that you use to push things out. And then you pop out a disk and you take it somewhere else or whatever it is, a USB key or whatever. You know, that that's much more nuts and bolts. Yes, there's a system running on that, but it's very isolated. It's a computer. So the kind of skills that you needed then were about how do I fix the computer? How do I, you know, install software and update it? We've moved to such complex systems now, and and the the work that we do is through the whole life cycle of again understanding the problem, doing a solution analysis. So, what should be the solution? What is it going to look like to get the solution? How do we build out a purchasing process for the solution? What do we need to bring together for a, a team to implement the solution? How do we get people to understand that about the solution? And then how do we get them to adopt and accept the solution? And then how do we maintain the solution going? So, you know, there's this whole life cycle that happens. And across that life cycle, there's just so many different skill sets and competencies that are required. You need people who can communicate you need people who um, can do problem solving. You need people who can understand, okay, well, this is the problem. How does that translate into system need? And, you know, so understanding process and how would we, if we had the system, how would we take what you're doing in a more manual basis and turn it into this automated process? We need project managers and they're people who um, need to be problem solvers they need to be highly organized. They need to be able to communicate. They need to inspire and galvanize people to do things, um, you know, and then all the supporting teams that kind of keep that going. And you need the technical people. So you still need technical acumen as well, because everything sits on top of something else. So whether it's in the cloud or it's, you know, on a server here, um, the network that supports it, all of those pieces. So I would say that Every competency has a potential to be a fit within a technology-related field. The, the challenge is really fi figuring out what are your strengths and how does that map to any of those particular areas? And so doing um, kind of a self-discovery is always the key. I talk to people quite a lot. I mentor people, but I also provide coaching sometimes for people around, you know, career aspirations, where do they want to go? And in my mind, you always need to first understand what your own strengths are. 
So again, it's kind of like problem solving. What's the problem? You know, yeah. where, what is it that you, because really, if we think about what we want to achieve, all, you know, everybody will tell you they want to be successful. But the other piece of that is they also want to enjoy what they do. And not everybody can do everything. So understanding your own individual strengths, first and foremost, and then figuring out how to channel that towards a myriad of options. Where would you probably have the best fit or where can you learn something and then leverage that to move on to some other opportunity as well? So um, there, I mean, really it's, it, it would be really tough for me to, to say, but if I, if I was going to talk about essential skills, it's back to basics. Can you, you know, can you be a good listener? Are you able to communicate well? Can you get to the root of what the actual need or problem is? And that requires good questions and good listening and more questions and a little bit of intuition, sometimes a, a little dash of magic. Um, and then, you know, can you find solutions and can you implement them and then support them? But the implementation and projects, it's beginning, middle, end. You know, we there's a terminology that we often use about landing the plane. You know, it's great that you can get things in the rolling forward, but everything's got to land at some point. And so, you know, yeah, but exactly. you need different people within any project team or, or delivery team or operational team. So lots of, lots of opportunities for people. Yeah. And I, I'm sure, you know, people find their sort of niche skill sets as, you know, time goes on and with experience, you know, you, you, you learn what you enjoy and what you excel at through, through experience really. And again, those skills that you mentioned really, uh, well, I, I have absolutely no doubt that they're, you know, essential for IT, they, they really do transcend any specific career path. They're just essential life skills to know how to, you know, work with others, use your intuition, think critically, and just adapt to problems on the fly. Because, you know, if you're in the world we live in today, if you're stuck thinking, uh, you know, from the perspective of yesterday, you're, you're not going to go anywhere. Um, things are just changing so fast. And, um, and with that change, just one last question for you. Are there any fields right now for for people who are trying to to get into it? Is there anything right now that's that's really hot that you would say, yeah, you know, in in a few years, this is gonna be the cutting edge of IT? Mm. Yeah, well, cutting edge. That's interesting. So <laughs> I would say uh, there are sort of standards that are always going to be de rigueur and you know really relevant but the really hot areas that are really starting to emerge now um cybersecurity, anything to do with cybersecurity yeah, and understanding and again some of that is really just based around essential skills yeah you, you need to understand how to work with systems and do but a lot of it's problem solving it's being curious uh it's really listening um spending time investigating and, you know, growth mindset, you've got to be learning all the time because it's a, you know, it's a constant detente between those of us who are trying to protect and those that are trying to affect um, using their, um, you know, with malicious intent. So I would say cybersecurity yeah. is huge and, and it's changing a lot. So it, it's become more integrated with artificial intelligence. I think he would have got a lot out of John Weigelt around that because I know that's sort of the intersection that he's really interested in. It's 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 cybersecurity yes, yeah. and what's possible, but then how do we automate and 
become more efficient and continuously advance our abilities using artificial intelligence and other technologies. So I think all of those, so artificial intelligence is a huge area, really understanding what that means. And at its core, it's a lot about, you know, machine learning, yes, all those things, but really understanding what's the value of the the data, because everything that we're doing at the end is about the information and information technology. It's about the data. It's the information. And what are we going to do with that? So in artificial intelligence, the data gets fed in and, you know, potentially decisions or learning or advanced um, efficiencies and capabilities are happening through that system or it's spitting it out so that we can take that and then do the next thing with it, whatever that is. Um, So anything to do with data analytics, really understanding how to um, categorize and use data to make decisions. So, and, and what systems are surrounding that, that allow you to do that more efficiently. I think those things are really important. And I, you know, I have to give a real shout out for project management and business analysis, the mindset of Mm. problem solving and helping to bring together need with technology and that's that process engineering really understanding what's possible so you need to know enough about technology to 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 kind of understand how to direct questioning to get the right output from people around their processes but really saying and and this takes a real organized thinker logical thinking to say hmm i can see the way people are doing things now if we wanted to really shortcut that, make it happen better, faster, using some kind of technology, how would we do that? You know, what's the way in order to do that? And it requires a lot of change management knowledge and things like that. And project management as well. I'm trying to think of, you know, things that I don't get to play in so much. The researchers are a little bit more involved in. The way we do networking, as an example, that's on a constant shift. Um, and I would say network uh, engineers are kind of like um, any sort of uh, practical, um, like, I'm trying to, sorry, my brain, it's late in the day, so my brain isn't pulling all the words together. But if I think about, you know, bricklayers or uh, welders or, you know, the trades. So network engineers are kind of like the mm-hmm. trades of information technology, but that is an area that's constantly growing and changing. And so, you know, getting people yeah. who really are interested in how networks work, that is never going away. And it's advancing really rapidly yeah. with 5G and, you know, somewhere out there, Google's putting up these huge wireless access yeah. points and stuff, you know what I mean? Everything. It's the, everything. Yeah. yeah. I think that that yeah, the is... World's, the world's a network at this point. A hundred percent. And I think it's an undervalued mm. and underrepresented area that if people enjoy tinkering, again, problem solving and mapping things um, and... Um, They've got math brain, you know, all of those things. It's a really huge area. And frankly, it's becoming very difficult to find people. And you can marry network engineers with security because so much of that is interrelated as well. So you start to, to your point, the interdisciplinary pieces of it, you know, you can come in thinking you're, you know, got this skill set. And next thing you know, you're working over in this particular area because it's, there's a gap there and you can fill that gap. Yeah, well, I, I really find that fascinating. It's not, you know, network engineers is 
you know, those are two words that I've never put together, right? It's always the electrical engineers or the software engineers or whatever. And, you know, they, they might start out as software engineers, for example, right? And, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe there's no need for a network engineering degree per se, but, you know, working in the field of networks as an engineer is, yeah, really something that you don't think about. And, uh, I, yeah, it, clearly, if I, if I haven't heard of it, it's something that um, is, you know, in the background, but it's clearly uh, so essential as you've described. So essential. And I, you know, your point on yeah. software engineers, absolutely. Because yes, it's cabling, but there's so much software that is actually what controls, yeah. uh, you know, firewalls and the rules that allow data to come and go from particular areas of campus and, uh, you know, and then building in the security aspects of that as well. So it is a huge area. So a big shout out to all the network engineers out there, but also if you haven't thought about that as a career destination, I think it's a really big one that has, uh, yeah, it's really fascinating and definitely never ending uh, need. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Kayleen, I'm going to, put you on the spot here um, oh. as we wrap up. What is, yes, what is uh, one skill you wish you picked up when you were 20 years old? Oh, boy. Um, that's funny that you asked that. I actually, it's all going to go to sports that I wish I'd learned or, you know, had become quite proficient at. I always wish that I'd become a better skier. <laughs> huh. And I know we're heading into spring, but it's a it's a unifying opportunity. I grew up in Calgary, so maybe it's more unifying in some places than, rather than others. But you know, at, at all ages, it's a great way to to go out, enjoy nature, and to be with people, and to you know plan trips and have fun and do whatever. So that's probably not what you thought I was going to say. But I do think that you know I wish <laughs> I'd worked a little harder in some of those um, sports skills. <laughs> So yeah, uh, always good to uh, always good to disconnect and a hundred percent get away from your is, screen every once in a while. Honestly, I yeah, I mean, I think that that to me, the other one would be musical skills um, because again, it's hmm. about so everything for me, all the deficits that I have are ways in which I could be engaging, you know, in new and interesting ways of interacting with people. So yeah, you know, could I be the person at the campfire playing guitar? You know, I didn't learn that. <laughs> And chances are at this age, I'm not going to. Never so. too late. Yeah. Oh, tambourine. No, late. I, I might be able to do the cowbell or the tambourine, but that's probably the end. That's very nice. Any, uh, <laughs> any career-related skills by any chance that you can think of? Hmm. Something to help people out, give you sort of a bit of an edge, something that will help you down the line. I have to be honest with you. I can't think of anything right now. I, you know, anything that you have is another tool in your toolkit. What I'm, what I'm really grateful for is that I had a lot of people mentor and support me and help me to see that the skills that I have are actually the skills that I need. So, you know, we all come yeah. with competencies and skills and strengths. And I think leveraging my own strengths, I'm not your typical CIO, I would say in many ways. I'm much more focused on the leadership side, the culture, the relationship building, all those things that tie back to interacting with people, trying to ensure people get to do what they need to do and supporting them in that. 
And so I, I think what I, I'll flip the question a little bit and say what I wish I had learned when I was younger is to really embrace who you are and leverage that mm. instead of trying to find a way to conform to what people think you should be doing. Not that I did a lot of that either, but you know, there was just that whole piece of feeling like you're not good enough or you're not going to be able to achieve certain things because you don't have an engineering degree or, you don't, you know, all the things that people might say that you need to have. So I think that that for me, when I was younger, I wish that that was the skill that I had developed a lot more self-appreciation and confidence in what I actually had to offer to the world. And, you know, I've learned that in time and it's certainly a piece that, and something that I use to mentor other individuals. We all have insecurities. I think really understanding yourself well, and I really applaud most of the students that I meet here at McMaster and around this area really have a, a really stronger sense of self they're much more emancipated, if I can say it like that, than I think I was when I was the same age. So I'm, I have great hope for the future. I think you'll all, you know, advance, you'll do the Moore's law of self-assurance and, you know, getting to where you need to do much faster than I did. Yeah. Well, normally I let our podcast guests, uh, sort of end off with a few words of wisdom, but it seems you've done that yourself. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. Really uh, an amazing discussion. And it was just so great learning more about um, your field and, you know, the challenges you face and, uh, you know, how, how we should adjust into the future. So thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thank you, Gal. It's been my pleasure. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Nerds and Nodes, the Mac AI podcast. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation just as much as I did. As per usual, I'd like to end off with a question to keep you all thinking. What kind of technological change do you believe is the most difficult to adapt to? And on a similar note, is all technological change or advancement completely necessary to begin with? I hope that leaves you thinking for the next little while. And as always, we'll see you next time. If you liked listening to this episode, then please be sure to rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. To subscribe to our newsletter and get monthly updates on our upcoming events and initiatives, please visit our website at mcmasterai.com. You can also get this information by following us on Facebook at mcmasterai or on Instagram at macaisociety. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, you can become a sponsor by contacting us on social media or by email at macai at mcmaster.ca. Sponsorship comes with amazing benefits like advertising on our website and on the shows themselves, the opportunity to join us as a guest, and participation in our networking events, and more. The Mac AI Society expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.